Want to hear some pages turning? Pages? Yeah, I know. I can't hear your finger, Doug, but... (laughs) For those of you who have the scriptures, please turn in them to Luke chapter 13. And we will be reading verses 1 through 9. Luke 13, 1 through 9. Yes, I have broken from my series in 1 Peter, my longest ever series. The fact is, this passage just kind of caught my attention a month ago, and I tried to get away from it. I went back and studied 1 Peter for this, but I kept coming back to this. So seems a little strange, feel like I'm preaching to the choir here, but let's see what God might say to us today. This is his word. Now, on the same occasion, there were some present who reported to him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. And Jesus said to them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered this fate? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or do you suppose that those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed killed them were worse culprits than all the men who were in Jerusalem? And I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he began telling this parable. A man had a fig tree which had been planted in his vineyard, and he came looking for fruit on it and did not find any. And he said to the vineyard keeper, Behold, for three years I have come looking for fruit on this fig tree without finding any. Cut it down. Why does it even use up the ground? And he answered and said to him, Let it alone, sir, for this year too, until I dig around it and put in fertilizer. And if it bears fruit next year, fine and good. But if not, cut it down. Thus ends the reading of God's word. His word is truth. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word. We are still children, and we need your word to teach us and to guide us, and we pray that you would make it effective among us this day. Glorify your servant Jesus, our Savior, and continue to build and strengthen your church, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. I am a casual student of history. Let me give you a couple of historical facts to start us off. Back in A.D. 79, so this was really only nine years after the destruction of Jerusalem, 40, 50 years after the crucifixion, so somewhere back in the ancient time, the city of Pompeii was destroyed by a volcano, Mount Vesuvius, which erupted sometime in late of the year, October, November. It's a wealthy city of 20,000-plus people, most of which escaped as it began erupting. They did run away, although archaeologists have found as many as 1,100 corpses. This all took place in two days, and Pompeii was erased from the face of the earth. In fact, they said people who did not know of the story could walk over the ruins, the ash heap of Pompeii 50 years later, not realize there had ever been a city there. So by 50 years later, it had been forgotten. I find that fascinating. Why this city? Why there? Why then? The finger of God. Fascinating. Let's fast forward a couple thousand years. December 26, 2004. Offshore of the island of Sumatra. The science of this is amazing. There was some sort of tectonic plate shift 19 miles below the surface of the ocean. This plate shift caused the floor of the ocean to rise 120 feet in a matter of seconds. And as you can imagine, all of that movement under the water created an effect. The energy has to go somewhere. 
and the energy went out in what became a tsunami that went across the Indian Ocean. Young people, I always look for something for the young people, spell tsunami to me after the church, after the service this morning. It's a trick. Spell tsunami. Most will miss it. Don't look it up. Don't ask for dad's phone. (laughs) Spell tsunami. So, 20 minutes later, this tsunami, in fact, it's interesting because before a tsunami, which is a giant tidal wave, comes ashore, the ocean actually recedes. And in the city of Banda Aceh in Indonesia, people actually went out and started collecting abandoned or leftover fish. The problem was it receded just temporarily, and not having recognized the signs, they rushed out and could not get back fast enough as the first of successive waves from this energy flow came ashore. In Banda Aceh, in a matter of just minutes, the third wave that came ashore was over 100 feet tall by all measurements, or all reliable measurements, and within moments there were 100,000 dead. Within moments, 20 minutes afterwards. Now, it didn't stop there because this energy impulse traveled across the Indian Ocean. When it's in deep water, it can go as much as 500 miles an hour. And it later hit the countries of Thailand, Sri Lanka within two hours. And eight hours later, actually 5,000 miles away, claimed its last victim on the coast of South Africa. Amazing. Almost 230,000 dead in seven hours or less. Erased from the face of the earth. The finger of God. The finger of God. Now that may seem harsh, but it's true. It's true. Let's fast forward a little bit more. May 24th of 2022 in Uvalde, Texas, a single gunman walks into a school and kills 19 students and two teachers. Now I know this is different. This is not just nature. This is a person, but in our text, we're going to see the pilot had done a moral evil that people had questions about. And so I will say the same thing, the finger of God. The finger of God brings up questions, does it not? A couple of sermons ago, I asked us to consider making room in our theology for a proper understanding of the fear of God. And this morning, I guess I'm asking you to make some place in your theology for a proper understanding and application of the absolute sovereignty of God over all things. Because if we take the Bible seriously, this is the finger of God. I don't understand, I don't profess to understand all his purposes. I do not profess to understand all these different situations. But I know what the scriptures teach. And these things are the finger of God. Seriously, we have to learn to take seriously God's sovereignty and control. And then we must affirm the... These things did not catch God off guard, but are even somehow foreordained by him for his purposes, for his glory, and the good of his people. We may not understand it all, but it's the truth. How does this sit with you? Does this leave you with questions? The problem of evil. How could a... All-powerful God, also be omnibenevolent, benevolent, still have a lot of these things that happen. I don't know. The fact is, I think there are some answers out there that are reasonable, but I don't believe the Bible gives us all the answers. You may have questions that God chooses not to answer. And you have to be okay with that. Deuteronomy 29.29, The secret things belong to God, but the things revealed belong to us. He has spoken. 
He has given us some comfort. He has given us some reason, some things to understand. But He has not given us everything. And you're not capable of everything. Or you would be Him, and you're not. we got to learn to stay in our lane. We cannot fully explain. But then that brings up the question of, what about unbelievers? They sometimes ask the questions. They sometimes point the finger. I can't believe in a God who would do this. What's our response to them? So, we are not God's equal. He tells us what we need. He tells us what is good. But he is above us. He is independent of us. But he does speak. And the revealed things belong to us. The secret things belong to God. This brings us to our text today. And I believe I will be able to show that there is a relationship here. First of all, let me set the context. Jesus is traveling to Jerusalem. In fact, Luke is kind of unique in this. Starting in chapter 9 through 19, he spends ten better part of 10 chapters speaking of Jesus and his trip to Jerusalem, Jesus' last trip to Jerusalem. And so he is going town to town on the way, sending out his disciples, welcoming his disciples back, teaching on things like discipleship, telling them to learn to read the signs of the times, all these different things, but town to town to town, on his way to Jerusalem for the last time. He knows what's ahead of him. He's on his way to Jerusalem to offer up himself as a sacrifice for the sins of his people. He knows the pain and suffering that's coming. You would think this might, from a human point anyway, really kind of fine-tune priorities. And I think this has something to do with it. Because when they come with questions, he doesn't give them a direct answer. He gives them the answer he wants them to hear. He gives them what is necessary to know. So Jesus traveling to Jerusalem, and the crowds are surrounding him. And in the midst of these crowds, as we come to our text... There are some who come and report to him about the Galileans whose blood spilt by Pilate and was blood was, was actually mixed with their sacrifices, probably actually taking place within the environs of the, of the temple. Now, this was not unusual or uncharacteristic of Pilate. In fact, what was uncharacteristic of Pilate was the hesitation at executing Jesus later. This was not uncharacteristic. Pilate was known for having his, his officers, plainclothes division, mixed in the crowds. So that if he sensed a crowd was becoming incorrigible or unmanageable, he would give the signal and they would all pull out their weapons and start slaughtering. And that could very well be something like what happened here. We don't know the exact instance, but it is in Pilate's character. And so somehow, as there were Galileans offering sacrifices in the temple, there was a slaughter and their blood was mixed with his, with, with the sacrifices. Now, how do you, how do you answer that? You know, some people come to Jesus and point this out. And you've got to think, they had questions. How could God allow this? What's the possible purpose in this? Or, in their thinking, surely it's included, though, that, well, these people must be worse sinners than other sinners. You know, because, I mean, but that's, that's really more of a belief in karma, is it not? You do something wrong, and God's going to get you. Or fate is going to take you out. Well, Jesus doesn't answer that. It's better than dropping it on the floor, right? (laughs) Jesus doesn't answer that. But he does use the opportunity to give them an answer. So he answers without answering. Verse 2, we see Jesus says, So do you think that these were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered this fate? And then in verse 3, he gives the answer. The first part of the answer is no. These are not worse sinners than other sinners. This did not happen to them because of some specific sin on their part, as if God's keeping a chalkboard. You know, he did this, I'm going to get him for that. 
It's not what happened here. That's not that that never happens. We see an episode in Acts chapter 12 where Herod is giving a speech, and the people were so impressed with his speech, they said, the voice of a God and not of a man, and Herod did not give glory to God. And it says that God struck him down right there with worms, and he died. So it happens, but Jesus is saying that's not what happens. That's not what happened here. He says, but what you need to take away from this, you notice how he doesn't feel the obligation to give him the answer that satisfies? He says, but what you need to take away from this is that if you don't repent, you will likewise perish. That doesn't mean Pilate's going to slaughter or mix your blood with the sacrifices. It means in the perishing, you're going to perish unless you repent. That's his answer. Now, I can't help but think, but some of them went away. That just doesn't satisfy. But that doesn't mean you shouldn't pay attention. These are the words of God. There's a lesson to be learned here. Unless you perish, you will, unless you repent, you will likewise perish. Then Jesus himself brings up another example to drive the point home. Verse 4, do you suppose that the 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed them, were they worse culprits than all the other men in Jerusalem? And the answer is the same. Different situation. Or like Zach likes to say, second verse, same as the first. Okay, very much so. You know, I, we don't know anything about the fall of this tower in Siloam either. We just know what Jesus says here. There was a tower, unexpectedly, collapsed and killed 18 people. We would look at that and say a tragedy. Say, Lord, how could God, an, all, an all-powerful, omnibalevolent, all-good God, allow this to happen to these 18 poor, innocent bystanders? Jesus said, that's not what you need to consider. He said, here's what you need to consider, unless you repent. You will all likewise perish. Now, there is a lesson here. You notice Jesus said it two times, which is really hard to miss. Unless you repent, you will also perish. This must be an important thing for us to hear. Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Now, I want to start with perish, and we'll come back to the unless. Perish. We need to understand perish. Naturally, I mean, of course, people came and they said, look, these people perished. Pilate killed them. And Jesus said, yes, and these people perished. The tower fell on them. So does that mean we're all going to die and this death is purely a physical death? No. Jesus jumps from the literal to the figurative here, and he's making a bigger point. The word for perish itself, apollome, like Apollyon the Destroyer, you'll see sometimes even in Lord of the Rings or something. I mean, somewhere there's Apollyon the Destroyer. Even in literature, the word itself means to destroy, to ruin, or for the person being destroyed, it is to cease to exist. And the implication is that it is by violent means. The word used here in the form that Jesus uses, it says, you will be destroyed. This is in the future. This is talking about something even beyond the physical. This is talking about the judgment to come. Jesus jumps from the literal to the figurative, and he says this is not merely a physical issue here, but rather an eternal plunge into Hades and a hopeless destiny. This is divine judgment he is warning them of. And there is more to fear here than just a physical death. There is what comes next. There is what comes next. There is something beyond the mere natural and the mere physical. And that is the judgment to come. This is divine judgment. In Matthew 10, 28, remember Jesus said, Fear not those who kill the body. Fear him who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. Just so you know, I'm a little uncomfortable preaching this sermon. <laughs> but here we are. Fear him who's able to destroy the, body, destroy the body and soul in hell. This is Jesus' words. 
This is not to be crushed by a tower. This is not to be killed by a tyrant. This is not to be shot by a criminal. It is unexpected. But it is the eternal punishment of God, and he says all will perish. He doesn't leave any out. Unless you repent, you will perish. It is a universal problem. It is the state of all mankind. It's because sin is a universal problem. All mankind before a holy God stand condemned. Guilt, we, in fact, we actually stand condemned three ways because we are guilty by imputed, imputation by the inheritance and the actual. And let me explain. Guilt is imputed to you because of the sin of our parents, Adam and Eve. Because Adam fell, you fell. And that is the clear teaching of Romans 5. His sin is your sin, so you are born in guilt. But that's not all our worldly father left us. Okay, because he sinned, you were born with an inherited, corrupted nature. And so you are by nature a sinner and stand condemned. And because you have imputed guilt and an inherited nature, you also sin. And because of that, you stand condemned. And the real problem is, like in Hebrews 9.27, it's appointed for men to die once, and after this comes the judgment. And Jesus is pointing not at the first death, but the judgment to come. That's what he's doing here. He has made a leap, and he's talking about your eternal destiny. I find it interesting. Jonathan Edwards, I I have been tempted. My son and I have talked about rewriting his sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Have you ever read it? Anybody? Fascinating. Fascinating. Scary. (laughs) Scary sermon. No doubt about it. But his text for that sermon comes from Deuteronomy 32, and it's just a small quote. It says, In due time their feet shall slip. This is just simply talking about people as they are. People as they are born, already under the condemnation and judgment of God. Surely, in time, in due time, their feet will slip. They are, he used imagery like being dangled above the pits of hell from a spider's web to try to show people the seriousness and the precariousness of their position so that they, to shake them out of their comfort, like everything's going to be okay. Because the fact is, just like these first people who pointed to the Galileans, were they worse sinners and God got them? And he said, no, 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 they're not worse sinners, you're like them. See, we always, we comfort ourselves by looking at our neighbor and say, you know, I've done some bad things, but I'm not that bad. And so we think, if God grades on this curve and everything, I'm going to be just fine. Because there's, you know, it's always, it's an interesting saying too, that you don't have to be the, uh, you know, what's the... If you ever get attacked by a bear or a wild animal, all you've got to be is like the second slowest to be okay. And we think that's how God deals with us in our sin. As long as there's someone slower, they're the ones going to be had. No, no, no. No, no, no. What Jonathan Edwards was trying to tell them is that we are all set in such a precarious position because of sin. It's a universal problem of the human race. We are stuck there. We are born there. And there's a perishing to come that goes beyond the physical death. There's something more fearful for us to keep in mind. And when these things happen, while we may not get the answer to every question we want, it is a reminder of not only the perishing, that our lives might be shorter than we think, but also the perishing. Hebrews 9.27 is appointed for men to die once, and after that, the judgment. The universal condition of mankind is guilt before God, and awaiting a judgment to come at any moment. You know, in Jonathan Edwards' time, last thing on him, infant mortality, childhood mortality was a much higher rate than it is today. Things happened. People died. Smallpox, cholera, whatever it was. He would never skip the opportunity 
to preach on the mortality of man that Sunday, which today we would call insensitive. Wouldn't we? Insensitive, which I've been accused of. I I get it. But he would never skip it. Because if we get nothing else, we've got to understand there's a judgment to come. Is there a way out? Is there an escape? What can be done? And now, from perishing, let's go back to repentance. Unless you repent. Now, this is Jesus speaking near the end of his ministry. And so, as, I, as things get more focused, and he wants them to, if you hear nothing else from me, remember I said this, repent. But this has always been the message of Jesus. At the beginning of his ministry, Matthew four seventeen. also I think in Mark chapter 5, his, when he first begins his ministry, what's his message? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is also the message of Peter, Paul, all the apostles. Peter in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost when they were pricked in the heart by his message of having slaughtered the Holy One and that they were guilty of it even though it was part of God's plan somehow. And he said, what shall we do? What did Peter say? Repent. Repent. Paul, when he goes to Athens, so now we're not speaking to the home crowd, he's out in the world, speaking to the Athens, to the people in Athens, speaking to the Athenians. And he says that God for a long time now has let people go all their own way, but now he is called and declared that all people everywhere should repent. When he is summing up his ministry while he's on trial before Agrippa, Paul in Acts 26 says, I preached everywhere unto all people that they should repent. This is the consistent message of Scripture. And some may be asking, well, what about faith? What about believe? We're going to get there. But the message, the heart of the message, which includes faith, we'll see, but it's repent. Now, it would behoove us to understand what repentance is. If that's the call of our Savior himself and of his apostles, if that is the message of the Scriptures, then it's important that we understand what is repentance. Now, at its most basic meaning, basic meaning, but nowhere near full enough, it means a change of mind. And that's a good starting point. That's a good starting point, but that affects the intellect alone. The New Testament usage goes deeper. And it tells us that this has actually a complete, repentance is actually the complete revolution of a person and affects not just the mind, the intellect, but also the emotions. The emotions. It it affects how we feel about certain things. And then it also affects the will. The mind, the emotions, the will. It is, true repentance brings change. True repentance is not just, oh, I'm sorry. There is a godly sorrow. That leads to death. (laughs) I mean, there is a worldly sorrow. Let's get this right. (laughs) It's a worldly sorrow that leads to death. But a repentance, a true repentance granted by God, he says, leads to a repentance without regret leading to salvation. We want to know what this godly repentance is. We want to know what is this deep revolution. Um, Raymond, Bob Raymond, Robert Raymond, wrote a systematic theology. He sums it up better than I could. He's much better wordsmith. Let me read to you a definition from him. In repentance, we acknowledge, that's a confession, we acknowledge or we realize, we come to understand that we are sinners and that our sin entails personal guilt, defilement, and helplessness before God. Now, see, this is in our mind. These are the things we need to know. We're sinful. We're born this way. We're guilty. And it is a deep-seated defilement and a helplessness before God because of it. Now, added on to this, we sorrow with a godly sorrow 
for the sins that we have committed against the holy and just God. See, this is not that shallow sorrow because you got caught. Right? It's not just getting caught. It's a sorrow for the sin itself. And not just because of how the sin affects me as if that's bad enough. Because sin always costs you something, somewhere, sometime. Sin, I love this, will take you farther than you wanted to go, cost you more than you wanted to pay, and keep you longer than you wanted to stay. It is a deceiver. And it costs you. But on top of that, it is an offense against a holy and righteous God. And part of what we should sorrow for is this offense. This separation that it causes between us and our Creator. Because He is offended, and He is rightly so. Because we are sinful. We have wronged. We have failed to keep His law. We have failed to love Him above all else. We failed to love our neighbor as ourselves because we are so self-centered. We want what we want. We do what we want. So we acknowledge that we are sinners. We sorrow with a godly sorrow. And then we resolve. See, there's the will. We resolve to seek pardon and cleansing from God through the blood of Christ, which also satisfies the offended justice of God. Now, see, in that last part, there's the faith. Repentance implies faith. If we go to the shorter catechism for a, for a lesser def, a shorter definition, more concise, repentance is a saving grace whereby a sinner out of a true sense of his sin, see, we understand, oh, I am a sinner. And apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ. We realize that in Christ, in the Son of God, is God's solution to our sin problem. In his life, death, and resurrection, and ascension, is the full satisfaction of the offended holiness of God. Christ makes it right for us. And it is by looking to him in which there is salvation. And this is part of repentance. We turn from sin, but not just to somewhere undefined. We turn from sin to God. Looking in Christ for the satisfaction of the penalty that our sins have earned. So repentance is a saving grace whereby a sinner out of the true sense of his sin and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ does with grief and hatred for his sin turn from it unto God with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. See, it is not some, repentance is not some lighthearted thing. And salvation that doesn't include repentance is not salvation. Many will preach, put your faith in Christ. And that is true, is it not? But it's truncated. It's partial. It's repent and believe. And the one who believes will repent. There is no way you come into the presence of a holy God based upon the righteousness of Christ and you are not sorry for your sins. But repentance and faith are all part of the same piece. They're two sides of the coin, two peas in a pod. Whatever you want to repentance and faith go together. And Jesus didn't take the time to spell all that out, but it's implied in the word. He says repent. So we turn from sin to God. We come to hate our sin, not just for what it costs us because it offends our Creator. We see Christ as the sufficient sacrifice to reconcile us to God by faith. By faith in Christ. That is the message of Christ. Unless you repent, you will perish. And for those that think it sounds harsh, I think it sounds totally gracious. Remember your condition. <laughs> and somebody, offered you, somebody just offered you the way out. They told you what door to go through to escape the burning, the burning building. I mean, however you want to look at it. You've been told the way out. Now, moving on in our text. 
Verses 6 through 9, Jesus tells a parable. It says, and he began telling this parable, and he talks about a fig tree. It's important to remember about parables that they are true to life stories intended to make a single main point for the most part. Now, to every rule, there's an exception, but today we're going to follow the rule. This is a fairly simple parable, fairly short parable, but I have found a bunch of commentators this week who really tried to parse this thing out word by word and fit it into a certain theological viewpoint that was in error. Okay, so we're going to, there's just no time for all of that. I have to keep telling myself that when you preach, you can't say everything. (laughs) So we're going to set that one aside. You're not going to force anything into the text, but we're going to see if we can draw the main point out of the text. And here is the main point. And then we'll talk about the text. Though judgment is certain, God is waiting patiently for people to repent. This shows something about the heart of the Father. He is waiting patiently. We see this in the text. I'm not making this up. We see this in the three years. He's been coming to check on this tree in his vineyard for three years. Now, fig trees, I learned a lot about this week. Fig trees are slow growing. And so it actually takes several years to reach maturity before they can become fruit producers. And once they do, they're somewhat prolific. They have as many as three crops a year based on the the new fruits and then the second and then the final big bountiful harvest in the fall. But the fact is, and, and they produce fruit in the spring, the earliest, before they produce leaves. Okay, But the owner, he knows this. And he's been coming looking for fruit for three years. So this is probably a mature tree, not just the three years, but older. He knows when a fig tree puts forth fruit. He comes with an expectation that there'll be fruit. And yet there is not fruit. He has the right to expect fruit, and he has the right to cut the tree down. But he allows himself to be prevailed upon by the one who takes care of the vineyard to wait just a little bit longer. So you see the picture here. He has been waiting. He has been looking. He has the right to cut it down, but he wants, he wants fruit. Do you see there's, there's like, there's, there's a bent to his heart, to his expectation. He would rather the fruit. And so when the vine grower, the vineyard, the, the keeper of the vineyard comes to him and says, look, give me another year. Let me work on it a little bit harder. He is very easily convinced that, okay, I'll wait a little longer. Do you see what it says about the owner of the vineyard? He's willing to wait. Not forever, but he's willing to wait. So while judgment is certain, he is waiting. This shows God's heart. In Ezekiel 18.23, Do I have any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, but would rather that they should turn from his way and live? That's interesting. Turn and live. Repent or perish. I would rather they repent and not perish. I would rather they turn and live. This is the heart of God. For those who scoff at the idea of judgment, I mean, there are people out there who say, okay, this judgment is certain, but where is it? I mean, how long have we been preaching the message of repent or be destroyed? At least 2,000 years from the time of Jesus. Much longer than that, if we look at the Old Testament. I would like you to take a moment, turn to 2 Peter. 2 Peter, starting in verse 3, we're going to go through verse 9. No, this is not a second sermon snuck in here. We're just going to make a couple of notes, but let me read. So know this first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lust. This is 2 Peter 3, starting in verse 3. And saying, they are mocking, saying, where is the promise of his coming? That's the judgment to come. When's God coming? For ever since our fathers fell asleep. 
All continues as it was from the beginning of creation. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. See, note, God has given us an example of destruction or judgment to come when he gave us the flood. And I would propose to you that when we see things like a city erased by a volcanic eruption or 230,000 people stripped from the face of the earth by a tidal wave or people shot by a random, crazy, criminal gunman, I would say these are, these are small reminders of the bigger. But they're nonetheless true. And so when we see these things, we, unless you repent, there is a perishing still to come. He speaks. He warns in the things that he has done. God speaks in the things that we see that he is doing and has done. He gives a warning now, is that mean-spirited or is that gracious? He's a, it's gracious to you who remain. It's gracious. And then in verses 8 and 9, but don't let this one, escape, one fact escape you, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like a day. The Lord is not slow about his promises, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Do we see the heart of God? Do we see his reasons for waiting? But I'm afraid that many times we take his waiting for weakness and we presume upon his patience, it'll never come, it'll never catch me. But it's appointed to men to die once. And after this comes the judgment. And God has given example after example. He has sent prophet after prophet. He has given word after word. There's an interesting passage in Amos, and I can't remember the chapter, but he says, I sent you famine. You didn't turn back to me. I sent you plague. You didn't turn back to me. I sent you destruction by your enemies. You didn't turn back to me. God speaks. God speaks. It's interesting. Look around the news, which I didn't have time to do this week, but you don't have to look far. You know, In how many states are there destructive wildfires? In how many states are there historical floods? You know, When was the last time? We had a destructive hurricane. How about the violence in the streets? In Isaiah, it represents the judgment of God as a lack of good leaders. God speaks. God warns. There is a judgment to come. Unless you repent, you will likewise perish. Let's go to some application here. For the people of God, for those who have repented, the first place you start is rejoice and worship. Your repentance itself, even though you think you did it, (laughs) and you did, but you did it because God's at work in you. Repentance itself is a saving grace, a gift of God, just like faith, and is the fruit of God at work in you. It is not some duty to satisfy God's righteous demands, but it is, it's not something that earns His grace, but it is an ability that flows from the grace of God in Christ. And He has set His grace upon you and granted you the repentance leading to salvation. And you should start with rejoice and worship. But having repented, don't stop. We live as repenters. 
It is an ongoing repentance. As by his grace, he has opened our eyes to see and given us the ability to turn and has changed our will that we might desire Christ. So he works in us to continue in us that which he has begun to make us holy. Having repented, don't stop. We are repenters. We believe that if we confess our sins... That's repenting, confessing our sins to God. He is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Don't you want more freedom from the defilement that used to enslave you? He will forgive your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. He offers you greater and greater freedom as he more and more enables you to repent and walk in holiness. So we begin with worship, we continue to repent. And when you see an event, like all of those I've mentioned, which I will not go through again, untimely death, tragedy, disaster, which pictures the judgment to come, you should end by rejoicing and worshiping. For there is no fear in death for you who have repented. Because the perishing still to come holds no threat anymore. Praise God. That's not the only thing God is doing, but that should be good enough for you. Those who have not turned to God, one question. What are you waiting for? I mean, really, what are you waiting for? I had a guy that works with me, worked 21 years, had a stroke a week ago. Probably will never return to work, though he did survive. I'm going to preach this to him when I get the chance. What are you waiting for? He's an unbeliever. What are you waiting for? Romans 2 tells us that because of, the, because of your unrepentance, because of the stubbornness and unrepentance in your heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and the revelation of God's righteous judgment. But it doesn't have to be. It doesn't have to be. It will be. It's a certainty. Unless you repent. Don't make light of God's patience. Don't wait another day. Pray with me. Father, sometimes there are portions of your word that can seem kind of harsh, but we see in this the grace of a loving God who patiently waits while he's calling his people home. Lord, grant repentance to someone today. Open their eyes, unstop their ears to hear of the goodness of God and the forgiveness of sin that he offers in his Son. May they look to Christ in repentance and faith, and may they receive from you of your goodness. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.